Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens and in this podcast my guest reveals the five things they would choose from any time in their life to keep safe in a time capsule. Well, to be honest, four things they want to keep safe, but one thing they wish had never happened, that they'd like to bury in the ground and forget. My guest in this episode is the American actor, singer and improvisational comedian Mike McShane, who first came to the attention of British audiences in the late 1980s on the show Whose Line Is It Anyway? and in the sketch show S&M, which he made with Sandy Toxvig. He was also in the sitcom The Big One and Doctor Who. Mike very famously played Friar Tuck in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, with Kevin Costner, Christian Slater, Morgan Freeman and the late great Alan Rickman. He's also been in Seinfeld, Barbarians, Death and Texas and the films Drop Dead Gorgeous with Kirsten Dunst, Richie Rich with Macaulay Corkin and the TV version of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Mike's voice can be heard on loads of video games and on Happily Never After, Thunder Pig, A Bug's Life and Avenger Penguins, among lots of others. He can often be seen on stage in Paul Merton's Impro Chums, but he's also been in Stephen Sondheim's Assassins and Little Shop of Horrors. Of course, these are just a few of the many, many things he's done in his career, and one hell of a life, as we shall now hear, as Mike McShane tells us the five things he'd put in a time capsule, and one or two other things. Cheers. I was trying to think without getting too um, lost in a sort of sad nostalgia, because obviously the way things are now and strange enough we're talking on and i'm you know i'm an american and we're talking on september 11th of all days yes quite which i i try not to inflate with any hyperbole or jingoism because we we had a moment where the world 
most of the world went, man, that's really awful what happened. I hope you guys get out. Oh, what the fuck are you doing, America? Oh, shit. And, you know, mm. we just went, yeah. you know. It's sort of understandable, though, isn't it, as a reaction to something like that? Yeah, yeah. We, we compared it to Pearl Harbor, where we'd already been involved or not involved in the war. We stood back and sort of were straddling two positions. We've always had a, I mean, it's one of the things I actually liked about it, it's the skepticism of getting involved in the government's chicanery at times. A lot of the mm. semi um, people who were seeking religious freedom and English farmers and like when they came to the U.S. when they first started the Revolutionary War, <laughs> you know, guys, come on, you got to fight for your country. There's some British guy who goes, oh, fuck off. I'm from Sheffield. I just moved here. I'm done fighting. I fucking left. Look, look what I just left. Fuck you. I'm growing corn. <laughs> I got Native Americans yeah. as fucking neighbors. Leave me alone. <laughs> the guys just kept showing up going, no, you need to defend the country. They go, no, would you like some corn? Fuck off. <laughs> and I'm, really, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. And I'm like that way on my mom's side, you know, that sort of English-based Methodist farmers, you know, I'm adopted. But I'm like, yeah. no, I, I just left a big fight. Are you asking, you're dragging me back into a fight. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Do you have a military background at all, Mike? Yeah, yeah, I was in the yeah. military. I was an 03 Bravo 20 entertainment specialist. <laughs> I bet you were. Literally, I, I worked at the NCO club, um, sweeping floors, booking the weekday acts for the club at Fort Knox, Kentucky, and uh, selling marijuana to the officers on the side. It was a nice gig. <laughs> good gig. <laughs> it was a good gig until I got busted. And then, uh, yeah. Did you book anybody interesting? No, actually, I never had. I looked later. I found a couple of guys I booked. They're all local Kentucky guys doing bluegrass and some folk music and stuff. Um, but the one guy, he introduced me to John Prine. He played um, Sam Stone for me. You know, I was kind of like, wait, this is a song about a heroin addicted vet. I don't know if you should be playing that at Fort Knox <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the Vietnam War. Um, and yet yep. it was compelling. It was my first venture into a really good musician. Yeah, I remember getting the album, going back to the barracks and putting it on, uh, and that started me rolling into that world. You've been stuck with it. Yeah. I've been stuck with that song, but stuck with the, a love of folk music. Um, not that I'm an expert, you know, I'm not like Phil Jupiter, so I can't rattle off names. I know what I like and enjoy, and, but I'm actually pretty eclectic when it comes to music. Mm. All different kinds of music makes me feel so many different things. I mean, it's weird the the ending music to Pee Wee's Playhouse has these minor tones. So when he gets on the bike and he leaves, there was one day I was, I think I was mildly depressed. I was watching it at home and the show ended and I burst into tears. I was an adult, you know, <laughs> and here's this, you know, naughty, puerile, vaguely infantile character saying goodbye to you. And it just reminded me of those days when I was a kid and I watched TV. I was an only kid and not really lonely, but definitely I could be in my own world, not wanting to go out into the world. Mm. So TV, you know, you could throw yourself into, but I always hated it ending. I, I ultimately enjoyed it, but I knew the program was coming to an end. I'd get really, yeah. fucking, really upset about that. I adopted my parents, but my dad would just look at me and go, what the <laughs> hell is wrong with that boy? <laughs> so I, was, I puzzled them continually. This large, you know, because my both my parents were petite, Irish, English-based people. And, you know, and I was just this massive child from the beginning. I was very tall, very large, and clumsy, and uh, 
I think they often just look at me going, well, we're definitely not fooling anybody. <laughs> you know, this is definitely an adoption. Um, and was it? Yeah. Yeah, it was an adoption. Yeah. I was adopted. I was three weeks old. I'm just trying to find out. Um, I had a non-disclosing form when I was a kid. And uh, I asked for it when I was older. A non-disclosing form was given to me where they uh, described my mother, but without any information as to where she is now, what happened afterwards. Mm-hmm. But she was Métis, which is French-Canadian and Chippewa. So she had border rights. So the, I was adopted in Michigan on the border between Michigan, U.S. and Canada, Sault Ste. Marie. And she could go between those two points. And uh, I often thought, you know, if I had to leave the U.S., I could go to Canada if I could prove that my mother had border rights. and She had uh, uh, First Nations of that. I've always found it intriguing, especially with questions of identity. I know, look at this. I mean, I'm as white as it looks. But any sort of mixed. And I always thought it was great. I go, well, that's the North American story. Look at this big landmass. Yeah. All the trading. And, but the idea that being mixed or having a mixture is, is fantastic. I mean, yeah. I've never understood the concept of purity. No. I'm, no, so it, I'm a very impure human being. <laughs> An over-emotional, over-large. Impure human. <laughs> so did you ever actually find your mother? No. Uh, her name was uh, Mary Catherine Lewis. And uh, I've submitted to Michigan to get a, if I can get a full disclosure. I don't think I can. I know from what my parents told me that I have stepbrothers and sisters. And the non-disclosing form was very frank about me being one of a number of children, uh, which led me to believe that she wasn't able to afford to keep me. She was unmarried. And in that time, you know, 50s. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cruel, isn't it? It, is, it can be cruel. It can be cruel that, that, in fact, either for religious or moral reasons, people have to give up a child. And, you know, economic reasons. If not for, yeah, a moral fabric of the, or the religious fabric of the community or just pure cold-blooded economics. You know, nobody wants to think that they'd ever be in a position where they go, I don't have enough money to keep this thing I love. And that's, yeah, that is tough. Yeah. I mean, I get into my country and all of its recent mm. coldness, but let's not. Let's not. We all know it. Because we can't solve it. No, we no. can't solve it, you know. A mentor of mine, a very good friend, he's in a theater company I belong to, a group called the Firesign Theater. Did you ever hear of them? No, I've not heard of them, no. Uh, they came out of the 60s and they did audios. They did records. And... um they did these hilarious records, one called uh, All Hail Marx and Lennon. It's a picture of them as the pull-up bureau with uh, Groucho Marx and John Lennon, like, in the background. <laughs> and, uh, so they're like a cross between Cook and Moore, The Goodies. Imagine The Goodies with more, more LSD in the system. Um, <laughs> but with these multi-track audio, rake-style radio shows. So they hearkened to the American radio show era, but did these drug-drenched, hilarious political left-wing recordings. Oh, dude, you should listen to them, Michael. They did one of famous spoof of uh, Sherlock Holmes, Hemlock Stones, The Giant Rat of Sumatra. It was very, they were very quick. So I remember my favorite lines was, oh, Mr. Holmes, 
I'm in a desperate fix and I need your help. Well, I'm in desperate need of a fix. I'll help you. Because <laughs> there's a junkie, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah. So they had that. that yeah. And so one of the guys, Phil Proctor, is in my theater company. Mm. And if you ask Robin Williams, John Goodman especially, he talks about them. A bunch of us, we learned our left-wing comic rhythms from these guys. You look back on those influences and the things that actually sort of uh, taught you to perform in a way. When you were young, you watched it and you thought, I, I really get this. Yeah. I understand what they're doing. Yeah. And I think I can do it. You start believing in yourself. I think that's true. I mean, I, I never thought that I'd end up in the UK doing Who's Fine. There was no plan. I would go to the United Kingdom and find some comedy there. No. Uh, so never. how did that happen? Dan Patterson. The great Dan Patterson. The yes. Great Dan Patterson. <laughs> so he came to America and found you, did he? Yeah, he auditioned because then in 88, the show was moving to TV because I'd been on radio. And they said, since we're moving to television, British improvisers are great from the neck up and words, mm. but body doing on stage when we're going to television, we need people who are freer. Hence the model of Robin Williams being yeah. physically as an improviser and character, you know. Maybe that might have been slightly true then, but that's not true anymore. What with no. showstoppers and everything, you know, it's amazing. Physical improv in English, no. So he went to all the big improv towns and me and Proops were from San Francisco. Me and Greg went to college together at San Francisco State. Mm. And then we'd both stayed in San Francisco and we lived in through the eighties and, uh, you know, we're, we're friends and I got into improv. And so that was a big improv town because of Robin. So Dan came and auditioned everybody and picked me and Greg from the San Francisco auditions. Mm. So yeah, they brought me over for one show and I was very, I didn't think it would go on. You never think, you know, you get in things, you first thing you're, you look back, you go, yeah, there's no sign going, this is going to be a big hit, you know? Yeah. So he did it. I mean, you know, Dan and Patrick put me up at like the Horse Guards Hotel near Parliament. So yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm literally like a hill, like a Beverly Hillbilly. I'm like looking at the toilet and walking around this like marble floor with these like eight foot windows overlooking the Thames, and I'm like, hot damn! <laughs> if if you taped me, I would look. Like I had two chickens under my arms, just walk around. Wow, this is great, you know. <laughs> you know, I did it with one, and then they asked me back, and I was like, okay. Wow. We went back the second time, and by the third season, it was a hit, right? And so I get up the third time, and then I went with Proops. We both traveled together, and, and we got off at Heathrow, and we got our bags at the bag check, and we looked up, and all these UK people were like, because they recognized us. And so Greg's a stand-up, and Greg's got a real... He's a great guy, but he's also got this hard edge. He looked at everybody, looked at me, he goes, shit, I knew we should have asked for more money. <laughs> he went right to it. And I'm Johnny Hippie actor guy going, oh, what a wonderful life experience. He's like, shut the fuck up. Get Greg and I go back to having to chase a guy down an alley to get paid. <laughs> we were five minutes late on our set. And so he used that as a rationale. Standing outside the club going, what, what, what are we going to do, man? <laughs> we're not getting paid so Greg goes let's go let's go dude come here come here so the guy was getting in his car behind the club and he goes do your crazy vet act you know so I did, tapped into my like what, what's going on man like modified Bill Paxton what are you doing man what's, the, what's going on man you, you're making me crazy and I picked up a fucking two by four and the guy's like <laughs> Greg's like you don't want to piss him off you really he's crazy he's crazy man he's in Vietnam <laughs> didn't serve Vietnam but I'm like <laughs> and the guy got him. <laughs> you do. People don't know you're so powerless in the beginning, you know? 
and the club owners can be, I mean, you know, Don Ward at the comedy store. I, he's always been good to me. In fact, the comedy store in, in the UK has always made me feel very welcome. I always feel very fortunate. I mean, the, the players, you know, yeah. Paul and Josie and Andy and everyone else, and Neil, they always made up. Me and Greg feel very welcome. And as an American, you feel very, very, very fortunate. The audience must be excited when you're in the crowd. Oh, yeah. They're yeah. great. Remember the old store where you had to walk around the back? Yeah. You had to use the public bathroom, and there was a sink in the dressing room, which, frankly, I don't know if the rest of the UK audiences know, was used by all of the major stars of British comedy as a toilet. <laughs> So if you, you know, if you pulled DNA and made a human out of it, it would have the talent of probably Stephen Fry, French and Saunders, Aid Edmondson, Rick Mayall, RIP, everybody. Yeah. And with a smattering of Alexi Sales and Josie Lawrence. <laughs> so you'd have this Franken-comedian. <laughs> Left-wing Franken-comedian. little touch of Eddie Izzard in there. A little it's touch lovely. of Eddie Izzard, exactly. <laughs> a soup song of Izzard. But I was, when Don moved the club across from Leicester Square, he took the sink. <laughs> and we kept going, why did you? Because they put a bathroom in the back now. It's all very nice. And, you know, it's good for the, yeah. the acts. But, you know, and I remember going, why did he take this? You know, is this a memorial? Or is this a, are you going to turn it into a fountain later? I, what's going on? And years later, we were doing an improv in Phelan McDermott who was playing with the players that night, me, he ran backstage. We did something and he came out as a herald with that sink with the pipe and held it to the base of his mouth and played it like a, and all the guys on the stage were like, because <laughs> they knew what had been gone through the sink. And finally, <laughs> he, he looked at everybody and everybody's on stage like he's a car wreck. And he goes, what? And then they told him. <laughs> yeah. He was like, <laughs> you know, here's a McDermott of all people. Yeah. You know? Oh, fantastic. They're extraordinary, the, 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 the players. The great Jim Tweeney. The godfather, baby. The godfather. He's the godfather. Mm. Him and Steve Steen were the, uh, I toured with them on the back of my, Who's Line and the success of Who's Line. Uh, we did a tour of improv, so it was Sweeney and Steen with Mike McShane. I knew them. I played with them. I didn't know them together because they grew up together. They literally were neighbors as kids. And we used to do at the end of the evening, I'd do an, an improvised uh, Raymond Chandler. I'd do the monologue all of Bogart. You know, it was a dark night and I had visited. Da, da, da. So I went to visit the colonel. He had information to give me. But the colonel had an unusual development, a physical complaint. What was it? You have the audience for a get. Yeah, yeah. And one night a guy yelled, extremely large testicles. <laughs> with extremely large testicles. So I went upstage, you know, and knocked on the fake door, and Steve Steen comes to the door and says, yes, uh, I go, I'd like to see the colonel. He goes, I'll be right there, sir. Just stay here. So I'd come downstage and vamp, improvise, you know, for 20 or 30 seconds while if Jim and Steve would come on as the characters. And this is where I learned my lesson about those two guys. I'm downstage, and all of a sudden the audience is just losing its mind. And I'm like... <laughs> I look up stage left, and Steve Steen is miming a wheelbarrow, and he's <laughs> rolling this and making the wheel noise. Like, <laughs> so you can hear it, like the wheels turning, and they're building this image, and he gets all, it's a big stage, we're playing a big theater, and so he gets halfway down stage, beautiful stagecraft, all the way to the center, stops. <sighs> picks it up again and starts moving again <laughs> diagonally. And then Jim comes in holding these imaginary massive testicles that are in the wheelbarrow. 
And so the audience is just, he's kind of waddling. They're like, so, you know, and he, they're building it visually so strong. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm just looking at it. Mm. And I tried to do the scene and talk to Jim. And so while I'm doing the scene, then Steve mimes like a ladle and is ladling water and is washing these massive testicles <laughs> while I'm trying to talk. <laughs> I just can't. I just stopped. I just stopped and looked at them because, and you know, they were so satisfied with themselves that they completely have taken the show over. But you're not bad yourself, Mike. Let's face it. But I'm in good company, mate. I'm in good company. <laughs> as far as that's concerned, I've always been in good company. Yeah. And uh, like I said, you know, this is ongoing now for over 30 years. I've been able to come to your country and play houses, a lot of the Matcham theaters. And now Kirsty Duty, we do Paul Merton's improv jumps. Yeah. I've played these houses and I'm a theater rat too. I'm a theater actor, really. That's why I look at it. I think I'm like Josie. I'm a theater actor who does improv. So I've played beautiful houses in the US. Uh, the theater company I belong to, ACT in San Francisco, was this beautiful uh, theater called The Geary, which, um, if you read the autobiography by Lawrence Olivier, that's the one where he plays Romeo and rips his tights going over the wall. Is that The Geary? It was the theater that they showed. Citizen Kane, when Hearst banned, because Hearst from San Francisco, he banned it being shown. They found a way into the Geary. The Geary is also the theater that when you go through Joel Cairo's pockets in the Maltese Falcon, the movie, there's a ticket from the Geary Theater in the seat. And in the actual theater now, in the old days, they have the Joel Cairo seat, which is a premium seat. So it's the seat that he sat and watched a play and then came back during the Maltese Falcon. They're amazing, those theaters, when you go into them. When you walk in and you go backstage... <sighs> I often think the moment that, that actors are very privileged to have is that moment of standing on a stage before an audience comes in. Yeah. When you're looking at an empty auditorium. Yeah. You kind of look at it, you go, this is your job docket today. These people, yeah. this event, this is our job today. Yeah. You know, playing the Gary was, I was trying to, you know, not struggling to figure, where would I go with these five things? Yeah. You just hit me the Gary Theater in San Francisco. Oh, that's marvelous. It has a lot of amazing memories. It is an old theater with all those cultural memories. It's also uh, called a hemp house. So it was one of the last theaters with sandbags and hemp lines. So it was a 19th century theater. And it literally was for the 60s and 70s, the hemp house too, because these guys were stoned all the time. But um, <laughs> in the 20s and 30s, it had a, a scenic rack in the back so you could do the flat painting in the theater mm. and the artists would dry their brushes on the walls and there's all these cartoon characters like Mutt and Jeff and Betty Boop so the artists were just cleaning their brushes I'd drawing cartoon characters some frankly some racist ones of Japanese and Germans because of the war but it was this amazing document yeah it was a wonderful company to be in it's I mean ACT was a theater company that gave America Sony actors Harry Hamlin Annette Benning. gosh um a panoply of American character actors and stars. Mm. And so it had a rich history. And, and me and Annette Benning, I don't know what happened to her. I, I have no idea. No. no. You know what the thing is? She's really cool. When we did, um, we did King John and I played Austria. Like you have five lines <laughs> and that you get killed. And some critics just had a go at me. Really? For five lines. <laughs> five lines. Dude. Get a life. It was like, you know, and I came in to rehearsal for like, we're doing two gents, was in rep. And Annette's like, Are you okay? And I started crying. I really started crying. She goes, what are you? She goes, don't. listen, if you believe the good ones, you got to believe the bad ones. I don't believe any of it. 
don't believe any of it. It just helps them sell the show. And then she looked at me, this great look. She goes, we've got work to do. That's what she's like. In a nutshell, that's my experience of a net bending. Fine actress and really level-headed. She has a beautiful baritone voice Mm. on stage. Mm-hmm. We did Winter's Tale, and she was one of the leads in it, and where she's, uh, you know, accused of, of being uh, adulterous, and there's a speech she has. And everybody's just put their, you know, we play backgammon backstage a lot. So we just put the backgammon thing and walk out and watch her do it. I mean, it always drew everybody. Yeah. Because when she'd hit it, we worked in this theater, an outdoor Shakespeare theater, this beautiful place in Berkeley. I loved being an actor in the Bay Area. It was a lovely time. I've been very lucky. When you look back at those things, look back through a career like that, often it's those, well, the areas of your work that other people would not regard as being huge or important that you remember most fondly. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure doing Friar Tut in the massive Robin Hood film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a huge part and everything. But that's not the thing that you've gone to. What you've gone to is I remember having five lines in... In this you know, idyllic park. Mm. This idyllic park we work in. Like I did Falstaff and Henry IV, one and two there. My first big role they gave me. And as the evening would come down and the lights would come down, they'd bring the lights up. But the evening light would filter through the trees and come down on the stage and dapple it. And I would always would always have that act of Henry IV, one with the tavern scene where, you know, don't banish me, banish Fat Jack, all that. You know, mm. the, that middle part where he says, I do and I will. Then the sheriff comes and they end that scene. Mm. And I remember always coming off stage as they switch the lights from warm to warm. You could see the audience. And I remember that's the first time as an actor, I was so happy to be in this company of these people. And so that's when I really, I know I just fell in love mm-hmm. with being a stage actor. I knew there was no future. That is my, my mentor, Dakin Matthew says, you want to have a bad future? Be a classically trained Shakespeare actor in America. There you go. <laughs> well, we all have that. You know, I mean, I've worked at the RSC and you sort of, yeah. when you're there, you think I could just stay here now. I could just, what are we doing Forever. Next? What are we doing yeah. next? And, you know, this is great. It's brilliant. It's exactly what you imagined acting was when you started doing I th- it. I think I was privileged to get that view of being an actor, which when I've gone to England, I found that a lot of actors, even, you know, like the great ones. Years ago, I did a play with Kevin McNally at the Lyric Hammersmith, and we had a matinee and an evening show. And during the break, he goes, I need to run lines for the next play I'm doing in the cafeteria. Do you want a whole book? I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I go and sit down, and Ian McKellen shows up <laughs> with a bag lunch, gets a cup of tea, sits down, eats his tuna fish sandwich with crisps in it. There's this unfussy aspect of being an actor in your culture. Because theater has been in British culture since some some idiot picked up a liar and went, here's a little poem about Beowulf. Hit it, Torvald. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? It's just, yeah, this is what humans do. Yeah. In Hollywood, we got so many filters, so many gatekeepers, so many people who want to get into something and get between things. You're like, you know, there's always been cheesy producers. Karen and I watched Stan and Ollie, and uh, Rufus Hound played Delphont. He was so great because he was just sleazy enough. Yeah. He was just always said slightly. Yeah, it's a great performance, isn't it? Oh, God, it's great because if you're a performer, you go, oh, I know you. Mm. Oh, I've met you before. Be your best mate. Exactly. Your best mate. Exactly. Until you're not worth any money. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of go, okay, if that's what it is, that's cool. <laughs> it's funny. I was, I was thinking of um, memories to pick. One of them 
I didn't know it was um, Jimmy Mulville mm-hmm. and Denise Donahue when they brought me in for Whose Line. But the second year, or I think they had interest in me because they expanded me. I did S&M with Tony and I did the big one, Sandy Toxvig. They were buying into me as a talent. And so they kind of hosted me at their house one day in Blackheath. And they had business to do because they're who they are. And they left me in their house for the day. And I remember sitting down in their garden and making tea. And I do this now. Every time I go to the UK, big pot of tea with milk, big wedge of cheese, chutney, and oat cakes. And I was right next to these beautiful, like, waxy blossoms in their garden, drinking the tea, eating this beautiful blue cheese, all this. I'm going... I'm thinking, okay, if, if I fell over and died right now, <laughs> this is nice. You know, it was just a sense of arriving in the culture and the best, most pungent, flavorful things about your culture. Yeah. And I was like, man, this is great. I remember that was one of my favorite memories. Thank you very much, Jimmy and Denise. Yeah. You know, Patrick did well by me. He really did. Well, we're doing well, I think. I mean, we're not sort of itemizing them specifically, but the bluegrass recording from when you were going way back, I think that would be a nice thing to put into a time capsule. I'll tell you, the memory then, that one would be sitting outside. This guy lived off base and he invited me to his house in a spire river in Kentucky. And he had a trailer and we sat up back listening to John Prine, sipping whiskey, listening to the full moon over the park as this brook, this creek is, you know, burbling past us. And, and I was like 18 then and going, this is great. This is like, this is what an adult does. Sits whiskey, listens to music and enjoys the world, hmm. you know? Well, that, and, and I also think, you know, working in the theater, that theater, and, and then also sitting, eating blue cheese in Jimmy Melville and Denise O'Donoghue's garden. These are three moments that that I'm with you. Yeah. I absolutely can picture them. Right, it's time for us to take a short break now. We'll be back with more Time Capsule stories shortly. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to Mike McShane's Time Capsule. Okay, let's find out what else he'd like to put in it. I'll tell you, I do have one of my first strong memory. 
I'm adopted and I don't have any brothers and sisters. And my mom's family had brothers and sisters. My dad had a brother who died. But my mom was a nurse during the war. And some of the men she took care of became uncles by default. My mom and dad had friendships with them. And I had an uncle, Frank, who was uh, a poet in Illinois. And he ran the local newspaper, you know, circulation of 600, and wrote these sort of like, you know, clever little short poems. Mm. And one of his poems was read at President Eisenhower's inaugural address. He was very proud of that. But we'd go to visit them in Illinois, and he lived in this two-story Victorian house on a farm, a plot of farmland with a big oak tree and a tire swing. And I would sit on the porch while he made ice cream with a hand crank, you know, and he would talk to me and I'd read the poems. I had really good reading skills, lucky as a kid, right from the beginning. I could read really well. And I just remember one point going, so this is what being a poet or an artist and you get to sit on the porch and it's great. <laughs> this is great. What a life. I want to be an artist too. Yeah, I'm going to make my own ice cream. Oh, I'm to make my own ice cream and yeah. have this sort of bucolic. There's a very easygoing Midwestern thing, which I do miss growing up in the Midwest. I realize mm. that some, as much as I leave, left it because of the racism and the you know homophobia and the right-wingedness of it. But on the other side was uh, my Uncle Frank was a petite, genteel man, soft-spoken. And I just was fascinated by him as compared to my other uncle who wasn't related to Uncle Buck, who was a Hemingway-esque alcoholic, a big, blustery sort of Oliver Reed sort of guy, mm. who my, my main experience with him was uh, we're sitting in the car when my dad went into the liquor store and uh, my Uncle Buck, he was a Marine, pressed the lighter in on the car and pulled it and he goes, put your finger in there. I was like four or five. Oh, no. He goes, do it. Do it. He goes, Pain teaches you lessons, Mike. You'll never do that again, right? He puts it back in. Wow. <laughs> that was the kind of guy he was. I wasn't going like, to do it in the first place. I'm going to teach you about pain. You really don't have to. Life will do that. I don't need an emissary for this. <laughs> It'll come along, I'm sure. <laughs> It'll come along. Thank you very much, <laughs> Uncle Buck. But I remember that was, a, that was one of those bucolic moments mm. of Midwestern life. I was like, yeah. Yeah, so it it is a, well, America is a country of contrasts, isn't it? You can't just sum it up. You can't just say that's what it is. Mm. Every part of it is different. And then also within each part, you get, as you say, you get that very right wing, racist, homophobic attitude to things. But at the same time, the extraordinary sense of neighborliness and community and looking out for each other, which is, which seems contradictory, but it's true. I grew up in uh, suburbs of Kansas City, and I knew all my neighbors. Um, and in fact, three doors down on the right was a family from Europe who had a grandfather who spoke no English, who butchered rabbits a lot because he loved rabbit. And rabbits were, in my neighborhood growing up, wild, wild rabbit everywhere. Yeah. The Kofelts, who were Lutherans, lived next door to us. Mm-hmm. All named their kids with the J, so they get Jeff, John, Judy, James. It was hilarious. <laughs> J. Timothy. That's why eventually you always get a Jeremiah, don't you? That's a, <laughs> they run out of ones exactly. That's the one. Joan Quill. Oh, 
must be one of the later children. <laughs> but it was an idyllic time. So how um, long were you in the army? I'm gonna, I mean, I don't know why I keep going back to this. but uh, 1973 to 1976. I joined uh, right at the end of the Vietnam War. And they had this program where you can name your uh, job. So I saw entertainment specialists. I went, well, I want to be in show business, I thought. I'll give that a try. But you had to join with a partner. You had a buddy system. Yeah. So there's a guy I grew up with who, uh, he's gone now, rest his soul. He was a troubled dude, and but he was charismatic. One of those guys, you know, you grew up with going, always going, should I be hanging out with this guy? <laughs> you know, because we stole cars and shit like that. We were pretty, you know, not violent, but he had a really violent father and a horrible stepmother, as I recall. Anyway, so when we got out of high school, we had a guy get us a bottle of wine this awful wine called Bali High. It's a fruit wine. <laughs> and we sat in this backyard and drank it. Kind of, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? That kind of thing. And he got, he got really drunk. He goes, I'm going to join the army. I'm like, what? Yeah, come on. We'll join the army together. And I'm like, uh, all right. <laughs> and so the next day we'd sobered it up. We went. You know, he was like, are you going to be a pussy? Or are you going to join? And I'm like, okay. So I went down with me. We both signed up. And that's when I came back and told my dad. I joined the army. We got the basic training and John, the guy I joined with, got kicked out of basic training. He got scared when he got into basic. I kind of knew I came from a military family. My dad was in the military. He was a quartermaster. It's all about this goes here, this goes here, this goes here. So you have supplies here, here, and here, that kind of guy. Mm. So I kind of, the military didn't scare me. And for some reason, I was stupid enough not to think, oh, if Vietnam happens again, if it rolls up again, I'm going. Anyway, he got kicked out. What happened is we were doing a march. He used racism to get kicked out. He punched this black dude, and they asked him why he did it, and he just went. He knew what to say. Because both he and I were juvenile delinquents. I was put into a mental hospital when I was a kid. He was put into a boy's workhouse, like a porcelain boy. So we both came from a system, a thing. Mine's different than his, but he knew the system. And he said, I hate N, N, this, N, that. If I see another N, and I was like, so, you know, because of the new racial policy in the 70s, then in the army, we had black drill sergeants too. They're like, look at that. I'm like, what? You know, and they said, you're out. Of course, half of my basic training company were African-American dudes from the south side of Chicago were tough. And so he gets kicked out. I actually see him off on the bus and I come back and they're all like, oh, shit, shit. But one guy, Mincy, I remember George Mincy, he was cool. He was like, man, this, you know, I didn't know what Ofe meant. Then. He goes, it's Ofe, motherfucker. He, he's all right. He's just this, you know, they're like, he's cool. He's all right. He's not that guy. And they're like, mm-hmm. But I kind of was like, my first experience with Southside Chicago dudes <laughs> who can be really intense. You know, they're good guys. I would be good guys. But yeah. where I was going, oh, I got to learn about black culture fast. <laughs> you know, fast and like respect it. And you you carried on listening to bluegrass, and you didn't suddenly go. Oh, I'm going to go to motel. I, I kind of shifted between. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I pull out my credentials. School. I think Bill Withers is fantastic. Like, mm -hmm. But good, you know. I made out a basic and got stationed at uh, Fort Knox, where you learn how unimportant you are because you're going to go. Hey, we're going to guard the gold, and they look at you. Do you think we'd let some idiot like you 
<laughs> guard the nations. Because when you saw Goldfinger, they're all like soldiers guarding Fort Knox. Yeah. No real soldiers guard Fort Knox. It's, all, it's a private security company. So then, having finished in the army, you then went off to university. I finished in the army. I went to a junior college mm-hmm. in, in the Central Valley of California. Strangely enough, and I didn't really mean to segue, that goes into my next memory. Yeah. That's where I met the woman who's now my wife, Karen. And she was in the theater department, and I was in the theater department, and she was and is extremely beautiful, redhead. And I remember the first time I saw her, we were bringing a set up to the black box theater to load it in. And I'd heard about this cute redhead who'd just come to school. And I was moving stuff, and the elevator opened up, and there she was, like, moving a set, like a platform. And I, you know, it's one of those things I opened and started, I was just like, wow. And uh, unfortunately, she had a horrible taste in men, but she's actually proven it by marrying me. Um, <laughs> so she was, like, hot for this one guy who's, like, the local bad boy actor, kind of looked like Anthony Hopkins, a lot of, lot of eyeliner, you know. Mm. And, of course, everybody told her to avoid him. Of course, she's like, well, if everybody's telling me to avoid him, Hmm. Of course, if you tell a woman not to do something, if seven guys tell a woman not to do something, most intelligent women go, no, no, I'm interested. You should have just shut up. <laughs> you know, you brought it up seven times. I'm a woman. I'm curious. You know, my wife's in, my wife is in Robin Hood. Oh, is she? She's not an actor, but she is because of Alan Rickman. Rest his soul. Really? Why? We went to Carcassonne to shoot the last scenes. And Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio had been wrapped already. So they had a medium far shot of Maid Marian being drugged into the castle by the Sheriff of Nottingham. And uh, they brought the stunt woman in for it. And the stunt woman looked like Ronnie Corbett. And <laughs> just like, you know. <laughs> and, and, and Alan was like, I'm, I don't think that would do it all. <laughs> and he goes, Why don't you have Karen do it? Because then she was similar height and size as Mary Elizabeth. Mm. And, you know, Karen doesn't really want to be in show business. She wants to be Lucille Ball. She wants to get, just to get on stage and go, hey, dig this, you know. <laughs> so, so they dressed her up in the costume, and she's in a mid-shot. Because Alan said, why don't we we'll do it together? Oh, I'm going to look that up, Mike. Yeah, there's a shot where, there, where Robin and uh, Azim or Morgan are looking through this gate. And then there's a mid-far shot where a woman's being pulled by the sheriff, by, by Alan. You hear him, help me, Robin. And he gets drugged into the... You know, drug into the building. Uh, That's I'm, Karen. I, well, I'm not really an actress. I've only really acted with Alan Rickman. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just couldn't yeah. find anybody else as good. So I decided not to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what you're doing is one of the things that drives me crazy about British actors when they come to Hollywood. So they get this both bites of the cherry. If they succeed, then you do the all the respect to the British. Well, you know, I've done a couple of Academy Award winning films and, you know, cured cancer and built a bridge of matchsticks. You know, the same thing. You're like, oh, <laughs> shut up with the self-deprecation. But you know, <laughs> but you know Hollywood. And you're like, yeah, yeah I don't, yeah. And then if you fail or if you, or if you don't get it, you go, oh, you know, Hollywood. And then every Britain goes, of course, of course. Yes, and, uh, I just needed to get back to uh, Colchester Rep. Exactly. You're like, <laughs> did you now? Yeah, I bet. <laughs> you know. I spoke to Kevin McNally. I bumped into him in London, and he was right in the middle of making four and five of the Pirates of the Caribbean. 
And uh, there he was walking through the street. And I said to him, uh, you're right. He said, yeah. I said, you've got a cardigan on. It's August. It's the only hot day we've had this year. He said, oh, it's just so cold to me. I've been in the Dominican Republic for four months. Mike, if I see another rum punch, I'll go mad. <laughs> oh, you, you poor thing. <laughs> and that's exactly what you mean, isn't it? Oh, it's exactly what you mean. You just kind of look at him going, can't you just go away, dude? <laughs> when we did the play together, he, uh, we used to call him the Pope of Ladbroke Grove. Mm-hmm. That was Kevin's nickname. I'll tell you what, to my money, he does the best American dialect I've ever heard. Really? Especially with things like Mammoth, with that Chicago, that flat, because I'm from yeah. the Midwest, that flat tone. Yeah. I went, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, as an American, when you do a British dialect, you're always like really nervous around yeah. Brits because you're going to get, you're going to get it for it, you know. And I got it for doing Robin and, you know, Alan used to give me stick in the dressing room, the makeup room. <laughs> I'd come and he goes, so Michael, what part of England are you from today? <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks, dude. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah. They gave me in Costner, you know, the press in Britain mm. gave me this like Costner and Europe sorted out for our, our bad dialects, you know. <laughs> and of course, the comedy store players and Paul will do it to me. If I do chums, those guys will get it on stage, especially if I do Scottish or Northern dialects, which it's always interesting to watch a, a Londoner up north go, I'm going to attempt a Northern dialect. And you can see they're like, please don't get me killed tonight kind of thing. And so look at that. They'll do a bunch of really broad ones. And then they'll keep me off stage. They won't let me get on. And then they'll go, oh, where's our cousin from Sheffield? Oh, you know, the moment of the authentic Lancashire dialect, you know. And I'm like, <laughs> So I get up and I just do something and they all just look at me like, are you from Ireland? And that's, you know, that's it. That kind of thing. Oh, it's cruel. You know? Oh, it's cruel, but it's fun. Yeah, yeah it is fun. You're right. Kevin McNally is, is uh, phenomenal. Well, he's one of the finest actors I, I know. I think I've ever seen actually. I'm- that's very true. He really is. He really is. He wears it pretty lightly too. Yeah. He really should be extraordinarily famous, I think. But the problem is, of course, he's so versatile. Isn't that weird? Sometimes versatility in art kind of puzzles people. It's mm-hmm. like, wouldn't isn't this what you want? Somebody who's masterful at this great width. Yeah. He's not grandiose about it. Kevin kind of is like a real bare bones actor with an incredible amount of talent too. Mm. He doesn't come off with a lot of stuff, no. but he's just solid as hell. You know, there's that old term, the durable character actor. Have you, you know, people throw that around? Mm. That you know, in the business, you go, no, these guys carry part of a movie they're not the star no it's not the big you don't want to know what their love life's like but you know what that's great Mm -hmm. you get to do your gig you can sit in a cafe and have a cuppa and nobody's going to get up in your kitchen about stuff maybe that's changed from now because he's so ubiquitous from from pirates i can't imagine any kid who's a fan will go oh my god it's you know i don't know i mean if you watch him in pirates and then you watch designated survivor he plays an american general in that you would not recognize the two characters next to each other that's true that's very very true that's very true mm. anyway we're wandering well away well from he's it. worth wandering to really he is worth wandering to in life he's- it's worth wandering anyway i mean as you can see i'm not a, a stickler for playing this game as it were i gotta say you're, you're you're pretty this is pretty mellow man yeah thank you, you know the thing's been organic and natural and I think that it's very clear the things that you would put into something to be preserved, something to treasure. Okay. It's very clear from your life, these things. So I, I don't think we particularly need to name them. Right on. 
One of the things that struck me, because I came and lived in San Francisco, and this was in the 70s, and they made a film out of it called Milk. Yes, I remember. And he was a, a local councilman named Harvey Milk, who was shot along with the mayor. And he realized there were these two cultures in San Francisco. You have an immigrant Irish culture, cops, local politicians and stuff. And that was like the 19th and then the 20th century into the 50s. Then when the 60s came, a bohemian part of the culture from the 50s on came in. And there's always been, you know, they always kind of operated without much happening. But Dan was of that earlier background, cops. And um, when he killed Harvey Milk and George Moscone, his defense was that he had eaten too much sugary pastry and had a sugar dump. And that was called in, in San Francisco, the Twinkie defense. Wow. And the judgment, we understand. And they dismissed his charges. Oh my God. And yeah. at that time, I traveled from the Central Valley of California, where I was living, to San Francisco. That's where eventually I always wanted to end up. Because as a kid, I want to be a hippie. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I went to visit him right when these riots occurred. And we were up on top of the building on Geary and Polk Street, watching the riots at City Hall, where you could see these you know, beautiful classical buildings and watching these guys turn a flaming police car over on its wheels up and push this flaming car, set it alight, and push it onto the stairs of City Hall. And this massive flaming automobile, that image, and realizing the power of people when they finally have had enough. Mm-hmm. That amazing moment of protest, which I'd only known in theory, I saw it occur. And I remember my friend who was gay, we were watching it and he looked at me and he went, well, so much for the theory of the limp-wristed faggot, Mike. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, brother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And these are some angry fucking people, rightfully so. I'm not surprised, but uh, that is echoed in some of the things that are happening at the moment in America. Yeah. Sadly. I think that's why it seemed trenchant to me. That did change things in San Francisco, did change things in America. Mm-hmm. But then there seems to be a drawing back from it in recent times. If you're an African-American in this country, you've known since, what, 1870, that there's these things your life is contingent on. Yeah, you can get the car, you may get the house. We may stop redlining in our communities. We may stop segregating the suburbs through political process and through real estate process to make sure that African-Americans don't live in these areas. There's, you know, there is an upper middle class of African-Americans. Obama, his wife, they're all part of that era of rising up into it. But this changes in a second. You know that. I can have the house, I have the cars, but if I'm in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time, if I'm just walking down the street in this place, it doesn't matter that I've got a PhD. It doesn't matter that I've got $5 million in the bank. It doesn't matter that I drive two brand new Lexus cars. Mm. To somebody, I'm a frightening thing and a target if I'm in the wrong place. I'm just in a place at a time. It's designated by somebody else whether I belong there. Yeah. And that person can call a cop and they can kill me. Surely it's something that has to change. Oh, it's going to have to change. We're changing it. It's not, com- it's not comfortable for anybody. We have an American term. I don't know if it's used in Britain. You've got to come correct. And it means you can show up knowing what's going on mm-hmm. and accepting it and working within that. Yeah. And this is our big coming correct. And uh, the impatience and the tiredness that African-Americans feel in this country, there it is. And so now we can take any bit of information and impose gossip and, and you know innuendo around it and suddenly go, well, it's not true. Yeah. Anything can be not true or true. 
It's like, we need a fair opinion. So from this educated academic who's done research, we need a contrary opinion. Oh, here's a guy with a foil hat. Come on in. <laughs> you got some guy going, well, Gleber Hunt tweet. And they go, well, there's the other opinion. Yeah, that's, so it's, that's where you go like, what the f-? Yeah. Yeah. You, sir, say that the world is round. Um, so uh, what's your counter argument? You know, because this man has just told us the world's flat and he's fairly certain about it. This guy's an idiot. <laughs> that's, that's all they've got. And we know he's an idiot. And that's kind of it. <laughs> that's <laughs> <You know>? it. <laughs> and only other idiots will believe him. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> yeah, beautifully. You know? Well, it's painful to watch sometimes. Along with all the beauty and glory that comes out of America, it's, um, it's painful to watch. But I'm sure you know that. Yeah. Oh, how many items have I got now? I think we're fine. Only other thing I could think of as a fifth memory was my dad was a mailman and he, and he never smokes. He lived to be 96 and, you know, he was compass mentis until the day he went. Brilliant. But he looked like Joe Biden, literally. My dad looked like Joe Biden, that Irish American stock. Mm-hmm. And he had that sort of like, hey, boys, how's it going? You know, that kind of thing. I take him to the mall for exercise in Kansas when he was 90. So he'd walk around the mall and he would cruise the young 70-year-old women. He stopped. I go, oh, hold on, boy, hold it. He had a baseball cap, like from a chicken manufacturing company. And he would like tilt it slightly, give it a rakish angle. Yeah. And he would stroll by and look at the ladies. I'm like, what? Brilliant. He, he, I, I miss him so much. He was uniquely of his time. Yeah, you know. And so I, I feel I've been very lucky. Things that I didn't think mattered. You go, no, I'm glad he stuck around. He was able to see me succeed at this strange thing that I do that he mm. thinks is like, you know, because he took it on himself to adopt me. They didn't have to adopt me. I always thought I must have auditioned well. Like, <laughs> you know, hit it. <laughs> you know, I'd like to do a classical piece followed by a small song. And then, of course, since I'm an infant, I'm going to wet myself. <laughs> and now I'm back to doing that again as a performer. <laughs> uh, Anyway. Oh, Mike, it's been so lovely to talk to you, and thank you so much for giving up your time. Oh, Michael, it's been my pleasure, and thank you for taking time with me on this. I appreciate it, man. Lovely to see you. Bye, buddy. Take care of yourself and be healthy and be safe, man. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Mike McShane. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe to this podcast for all new episodes as they're released and do rate the show if you have a spare moment. You can keep up with what's going on with us if you follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. And we nearly always reply to your questions and comments. Do be kind, obviously. Remember the pen is mightier than the sword. Although only if the sword is very small and the pen is really, really sharp. This has been a cast-off production for Acast. Our theme music was written by Past the P music and you can find it anytime you like on spotify my time capsule was produced by john fenton stevens so see you soon bye oh, sorry were you waiting for a joke to finish with look it's not easy you know i mean i've already given you the pen one i mean it's not much of a joke but it is one if only by definition okay um Right. Um, Why are bears large, brown and hairy? Because if they were small, white and round, they'd be eggs. Yeah, I agree. You have just wasted your time. Bye. (laughs) 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.